Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. And good afternoon. So uh, we are scheduled to have a conversation right off the bat here with Gail Collins. At the moment, we're having a little bit of trouble finding Gail Collins. So this gives me the opportunity to observe several things. First of all, uh, the first show that we ever did, the first guest on the first show that we ever did was Gail Collins. That was almost eight years ago. Um, and we just took off from there. But here, like eight years later, we still can't find Gail. Uh, I, I think we'll find her any second. I, I also... <laughs> Since I have a couple of moments to kill here, anyway, I want to say something unbelievably self-indulgent, sort of, which is that I was out walking the dog the other night, and I was just, you know, sometimes you're just walking the dog, and you just, I don't know, there's nothing else to do. You just kind of do mental math, and uh, I think we've got her here right there. You sort of do mental math, and so I realized that I have been a radio broadcaster for 25 years. Like, right around now, it was right around, like, roughly, if not exactly, today, 25 years ago, I started out. Uh, moved from print journalism and became a radio broadcaster. And I, st- I didn't know anything about radio. And I'm pretty sure I still don't know anything about radio. I, mean, <laughs> I think if you were to ask people around here in the building, does he know anything about radio? For the most part, they would say, no, not really. Like, I know that we don't show pictures, for example. I know that. But, I mean, in terms of, like, <laughs> how anything else works, I have no clue. Uh, um and I think there's some charm to that, too. It's, I mean, it's been hard work for 25 years making sure that I don't know anything about radio. It, it's not something that you, like, almost by accident I could have learned something. So I had to be vigilant and make sure I didn't learn anything. All right, Gil Collins, who was the first ever guest on this radio show, uh, and is now a guest today, has joined us, journalist, op-ed columnist for The New York Times, author of many books, including America's Women, 400 Years of Dolls, Drudges, Helpmates, and Heroines. Um, Gail, I know we're about to talk about something else, but um, I should point out that you, you wrote a column over the weekend about Columbus uh, Day and Columbus observances, and that here in Connecticut, we are that unique place where today we added a Columbus statue, or uh, I think it's a bust. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh a gosh. bust. Yeah, we added a Columbus. Is it a bust? Is it a, it's in Southington, and there's a, a, a protest of it. They are dedicating it and protesting it at the same time. Uh, as a, Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's pretty much, you know, I mean, when people def- defend it, they say, you know, we owe so much to him. Um, and Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, well, I don't think he had bad intentions. That's, that's, that, that was my sort of argument about not tearing down all the statues, but I hadn't thought right. about putting some more up. Right. The sea lanes. There's already 100 right. in the country. Yeah, we have plenty. There's no question that we, n- not another one was needed, but apparently <laughs> somebody needed another one. And I would like to also point out that the sea lanes to hell are paved with good intentions. It's not just the roads. <laughs> um, all right, so enough Columbus. Although Gail and I could talk about Columbus at great length. For a um, long time. For a long, long time. But we're not going to. We're going to talk about something.
something even more upsetting. So um, one of the great injustices, it turns out, cultural injustices of 2017 is that The Handmaid's Tale was not nominated in the documentary uh, category uh, in any of the major awards because, in fact, uh, it does appear as though some people are taking it rather seriously. So we got this news. It it was kind of sudden news on Friday, Gail, but in many ways not sudden. I mean, this was kind of a shoe we sort of knew was going to drop, right? I I, I don't know if you want to describe how you perceive that shoe. Well, the the shoe which dropped is the fact that the, the, the Obamacare rule that required employers to provide uh, contraception under birth control as part of you know their health packages has now been basically completely undone by Donald Trump. I mean, you, in, in theory, you have to send them a note or something saying, well, we just think morally this is a bad idea, but in fact, you don't have to provide your female employees with um, birth control if you don't want to and your health care plans. And that's the story. Right. This was offered as, I believe, actually, the term of art in the bureaucracy is guidance. Um, uh, And it was offered by Jeff Sessions and and other people. And and, I mean, we should say, although we're going to focus here on contraception for a second, that that's sort of just the tip of the iceberg. Basically, what they did is this whole conversation that we had a couple of years ago, and we've had repeatedly about religious freedom restoration acts, this notion that you just don't have to obey certain laws if you have if you claim religious compunctions about them. Um, The way that I interpret that guidance on Friday, it it could apply to all kinds of things. It's been suggested that a Social Security clerk, you know, processing the benefits of a widow from a gay marriage could say, Jesus, my conscience tells me I really can't do this. Um, That, that in fact, if you're going to extend the thinking of this particular guidance, it, it goes all over the place, right? Yeah, and, and thank you for adding that new worry. I hadn't thought about that one, Colin, but you're, you're absolutely right. So, so on, the, on the contraception thing, so this is sort of an interesting area of American life, which is that, I mean, in, in fact, contraception, uh, per, just as itself, as qua, qua contraception, it's not a super controversial thing. I mean, I think if you look at Gallup and stuff like that, it's roughly as controversial as statins. Like, like 89% of people, I think, say that contraception is an okay thing. Um, and that includes people, many people who belong to religions which teach that it's not an okay thing. This is one of the most, I think, ignored religious teachings in the entire world at this point in time. Right. So people don't have a problem with that, but it gets much more complicated as a matter of public opinion and public policy when you start saying, well, okay, but as a result of the fact that we are extending comprehensive um, uh, health insurance through the Affordable Care Act to any number of Americans, and one aspect of that, one thing that we see as a reasonable aspect of health care is access to contraception. Uh, Once again, that sounds like a pretty reasonable thing to say, Um, but then there there's this pushback. The pushback is what we're seeing right now. There's there's at least a small organized group of people who say, no, I as an employer shouldn't be required to pay for insurance that in turn pays for contraception. Yeah. And when this all first came up, um, the administration wound up going, the Obama administration went through enormous hoops to take care of people like the Little Sisters of the Poor, who were the famous plaintiffs and all of this, who religious groups that did not 
said they could not, as a matter of principle, pay for contraception by working out this thing where they wouldn't have to pay for it, and then the insurance company would have to pay for it, and the government would re, you know, reimburse the insurance. I mean, it was this sort of elaborate lattice work mm-hmm. that was you know, constructed by the, uh, the Obama administration just to make sure that that kind of very specific, we are the little sisters of the poor and we cannot be putting, you know, contraceptives in our plans thing was taken care of. But the, the, these new rules are much more expansive than that. They're just, or anybody who just feels a twinge may report right. their twinge and that's it. Well, and, and I mean, this, you know, immediately two attorneys general uh, filed responses in Massachusetts and California filed lawsuits uh, saying that the rules violate the First Amendment Establishment Clause. To me, one of the things, I don't know, this gets explained lots of different ways. When I try to explain it, I say, look, your your religious freedom in America means that you are free to practice when you are practicing your religion, any religion imaginable, pretty much, even, even a religion which in its theology has discriminatory ideas about all kinds of otherwise protected groups of people. When you're in your little church or tabernacle or, you know, coven or whatever you're in, you can go do that and you can believe anything you want. You can't operate a lunch counter along those principles. In other words, if your religion has decided that black people or women or gay people or whatever are the spawn of Satan, that's fine in your church. You can't, mm-hmm. you have to follow the law everywhere else that there's laws. And that's sort of how the country has typically worked. But but this this whole RIFRA movement is the opposite of that, right? This is to me like a really great example of the difference between having laws that 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 that, that work on American morality and simply legislating theology, somebody's particular theology. Americans morally, for instance, you know, everything in our crime laws, you know, in one way or another, reflect the American sense of morality. It's not moral for you to go out and shoot another person and kill them. It's not moral for you to take things that belong to other There's just a bunch of things like that. But once you get into very specific theological issues, that's where this country makes a point of keeping it out of the law. And this is pure theology. This is not, as, as you said, this is not a conviction that most Americans, or even many Americans at this point in time, share. But yet it's being imposed because some people's theology uh, find it very important. And and that's just the the absolute thing that we're all agreed we're not going to do, and we're doing it in this case. All right. Speaking of things that we can and can't agree on, usually, you know, if you really want to get some kind of consensus and ask people to compromise a little bit on the subject of abortion, you can. I forget whether it was Joycelyn Elders or whoever it was who came up with this idea. But the notion of safe, legal and rare, that's sort of a, you know, the thing where you can get an awful lot of people uh, under 110. So um, what we've got here, though, is a ban on contraception, which is one of the things that uh, one would assume would decrease the number of. Of, uh, of necessary abortions. Uh, and at the same time, we have something called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, um, which has been uh, uh, passed by the House but not in the Senate. Uh, this uh, is uh, an anti-abortion measure that uh, sets 20 weeks uh, as the limit. Um, I just, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of this, uh, I'd like to be the first person to point out that if you take the word act away, Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection, that acronym is a palindrome, P 
PCUCP. It works the same way backwards. Wow. All right. That's my contribution to the debate. <laughs> um, so, th- I mean, this seems, as, as is often the case, if you want to prevent abortions, one great thing you could do was make sure everybody had access to contraception, right? Mm-hmm. That's the great thing that I think drives many women crazy about this entire argument. There's a general agreement in this country that you want to try to avoid late-term abortions. Mm-hmm. That it's much, if you look at any survey, I mean, the people are in general pretty okay with first trimester abortions. And then the farther on beyond that it goes, and the more the fetus begins to remind people of the future baby, the more disturbing people find. So I think, you know, the agreement that that, that late-term abortion should be rare is, I think, pretty universal. But then the idea that you leap from that to arguing that you shouldn't be providing women with easily accessible contraception is is just, it's mind-boggling. So, uh, you know, and, and in the midst of all that, we are invited to examine the consciences of people who push these kinds of things. We should say that it's unlikely that this particular act is going to make it through the Senate, but it does enjoy uh, some support from President Trump himself. But, I mean, this, once again, is running on a parallel track with uh, a lot of other recent news, including the story of Tennessee, uh, of, uh, excuse me, of Tim Murphy, uh, the Pennsylvania uh, congressman. Uh, he is a Republican congressman who, um, it turned out, although he is one of the people who supports bans of this kind and, and has a lot of public rhetoric in the anti-abortion camp, had during a false alarm pregnancy with his mistress um, encouraged her to go get an abortion. This isn't exactly, th- this fact pattern, Gail, is not one that is completely unf- unfamiliar to us either. No, there's been a bunch of cases of this over over the, the the course of recent American history. I mean, ever since we started having arguments about abortion, we can't have come up against these guys who you know have just decided that it's really really bad. And um, except when they, it's about them. In fact, there's a Republican from Tennessee who went through this whole thing. He's from a very safe district. Unlike Representative Murphy, he did not resign when it was revealed that he had a mistress who he was trying to, um, who he had encouraged to get an abortion. Um, it, it didn't. He's still there, and he's still voting against abortion bills. It's just, it's sort of amazing. And um, it, it, there's just this sort of blank space, and 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 Representative Murphy was was an excellent example. And um, the only change now is that he did at least have to leave, which hasn't you know, historically been the case. So uh, as we leave this topic and, and take a break and come back and talk about a few others, I mean, how do you, how do you, where do you see this right now? Is this something? I mean, it's obviously cause for alarm. I mean, the the first thing that we talked about this kind of RIFRA rollback of of Affordable Care Act um, mandates for contraceptions. At the moment, that's a kind of done deal unless they can win one of these lawsuits. Uh, the abortion ban is something I think will probably not make it out of Congress. I I don't know what what kind of tincture do you put on all of this at this particular moment on this particular day? Well, the great worrisome thing um, for me is that this administration, you know, that whoever is running Health and Human Services right now, uh, is, is, is just stacked with people who have very radical beliefs when it comes to matters of sex, of people 
who believe or who say they believe that birth control causes breast abortion causes breast cancer, that birth control is is dangerous, that it makes you crazy, who believe in teaching only abstinence in the classroom when it comes to sex education, who are rolling back teen pregnancy prevention programs even as we speak. And these, these, I mean, this is the whole story of the Trump administration. When you look at it on the very top, you're seeing nothing but failures. Nothing is happening. It's nothing is happening at all. But on the administrative level, they're changing rules, they're changing staffing, they're changing programs in ways that are, are, are going to have a terrible impact uh, over the long run, especially on the people who are the most vulnerable. One one thing that I say all the time about this is uh, something that was said to me by the theologian uh, Thomas More, not the old old Thomas More. I didn't know him, but um, <laughs> the the guy who wrote Care of the Soul. So I asked him. I asked him sort of the Ted Haggard question. Or, you know, Betsy Kaplan is mentioning to me Larry Craig, David Vitter, Dennis Hastert, all these guys. You know, who come out of these uh, highly um, uh, moralistic uh, and prescriptive movements, uh, and then it turns out you can just like set an egg timer by for well, it took Denny a while, but for the rest of them. I mean, pretty quickly they, you know, they get caught doing something. And I asked him that. I asked him kind of the Ted Haggard question, like, how come when you see somebody like that, you kind of know that sooner or later it's going to turn into this other thing to its opposite? And he said, because they have already acknowledged the incredible power that this subject matter has over them, Um, which I think is a great, I mean, you know, when you think about Tim Murphy or whoever, it's not a bad way to look at it. Um, All right. So uh, we are going to take a break. Uh, Gail is going to come back. We're going to talk about cheerier subjects. If you think Bob Corker is a cheerier subject, which by our spavined standards he possibly is. And a few little fancy frills Yeah, I'm making up for all those years Since I've got the pill This is the Colin McEnroe Show, and with us is Gail Collins. I just re-upped and slightly reconfigured my New York Times subscription today. And I can think of no better reason to do it than Gail Collins, journalist, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, author of many books, including America's Women, 400 Years of Dolls, Drudges, Helpmates, and Heroines. So we're going to talk about two other things uh, that are slightly less bleak than what we talked about before. Um, First of all, uh, Gail, I sort of feel sorry for Mike Pence, because, and I'll tell you why. (laughs) I'm sorry. No. (laughs) Go ahead. Even though he's uh, he's the king of all this Rifra stuff too. I mean, before he got involved with Donald Trump, he was the king of those religious freedom laws. But no, because I think he probably really thought he was going to get to go to the football game. I mean, I assume Trump <laughs> called him in and said, "Look, I'm going to fly you and Karen uh, to the football game," and he probably said, well, "I like football." Uh, and, and and then Trump said, "There's one thing: you have to leave like really before after the anthem. You just have to leave." And he said, well, can I stay and watch the football game? This is my Mike Pence impersonation. And and Trump said, no, because there's going to be people who are going to kneel, and then we're going to do this whole kind of kabuki thing where we get, we get really mad about it. Um, but, I mean, it is a kabuki thing, right? We, we the taxpayers, pay, paid a quarter million dollars so that they could do this weird thing, right? It was a total kabuki thing, obviously. I mean, Mike Pence went in there knowing he was not going, whether – he originally thought he was going to go to the game or whether Trump called him up and said, hey, there's this game. Why don't you go and then leave? I don't, do not know. But, but uh, the reporters <laughs> knew when he was going in that he was not going to be there very long. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's uh, 
and, and they clearly feel, and I know it's true in many ways, that this is something that the bass really, really loves. And that good old bass, you know, although it's not many people by the standards of the country, is the thing he's he's working. And and, and it, it's you know, it just it's very sad. I mean, I'm sorry. This is another sad one. Geez, the poor football players. I mean, that's just the only time in history I've ever felt sorry for the football players. I just do not get wound up in this normally, but. The guys who are doing this were guy are guys who clearly have a sense of of, um, of morality, mm-hmm. and they're getting jumped on by the president of the United States, and they're young men. I mean, it's just really bad. I'm sorry. Right. This this people often evoke the First Amendment incorrectly, but this is a First Amendment case. The president of the United States is trying to punish people for speaking out, uh, and it, it really it really does you know begin to seem like a constitutional question. All I want to say, because our time is limited, is I hope that. Uh, Mike and Karen, after they left the game, could go out to one of their favorite restaurants because, as you know, Mike Pence can only eat with Karen. He cannot eat with other <laughs> women. If there's he, a woman around, right? No, he no can't. Other ladies, no, no, right? No. He can't go out to dinner with you uh, because you are the creation of Satan and would mm-hmm. obviously. God knows what would happen. Yeah, exactly. I, I would like to point out though what he was doing when he got back on that jet for which we are paying tremendously, you know, lots of money, is he went to a fundraiser in California, I think. I mean, he flew all the way across the country. Again, we're paying him to go to a fundraiser. Uh, this, it's just, I mean, at least he could have done when have gone home for the night and had dinner with the poor woman. Eric Reed, one of the football players behind a lot of these protests, uh, tweeted, this is what systemic oppression looks like. A man with power comes to the game, tweets a couple of things out, and leaves the game with an attempt to thwart our efforts. Uh, Well said, uh, Mr. Eric Reed. We have a limited amount of time left here, and we really do have to talk about Bob Corker. Bob Corker is such a complex figure in our lives. Uncorked, wow. He's a a moderate, uh, he's He's one of those, and you you are familiar with these people too. You know, P- congressmen, legislators, senators who are comfortable talking with reporters. Right. Who, uh, and and they're they're that doesn't say much beyond the fact that they're comfortable. But they're I mean, he has a lot of people he knows. He has a lot of our friends, I think, in the media. And he's a moderate, sensible guy, and he's not running for re-election, so there's nothing Donald Trump can do to him. But he's going to be there for another year and a half, and clearly he is going to enjoy spending the next year and a half talking about what a maniac the President of the United States is. It's very weird, but fascinating. Right. So he has suggested that the, that uh, Trump's recklessness uh, constitutes a threat of World War III. Uh, he says he's been treating the office like a reality show. He compared it at another point, I think, to an adult daycare center. I mean, none of these things are are unfamiliar ideas to us. They're things that we say all the time, but it really is interesting to have a member of his party and somebody who Trump liked enough at one point to have him shortlisted for Secretary of State. Um, and, and you combine this with what's now being called Moron Gate, which is, you know, Rex Tillerson supposedly <laughs> having said these, these things about Donald Trump, and I guess Tillerson and Corker are reasonably close and allied. And you wonder if maybe there is this little faction growing, not to get ahead of the story, but a little faction growing here on the Republican side of this, which is beginning to have, you know, more than, say, five people who are looking at this situation and saying, this is really scary. We should maybe be prepared to use the 25th Amendment if the day comes when that's the way to save the world. We should be prepared, you know, to to do something about this. I don't know. Am I? Yeah, well, Corker himself said that, um, 
that he um, that that he whatever he was saying was things all the things he was saying, which were what, all the things you just said, were things that all the Republicans are saying behind the scenes that the other senators say to each other, and that there were only a few senators who were not saying those things to each other. So you do. And that's undoubtedly true. You do have a, a, a Republican Senate that's got a ton of people there, you know, talking behind the scenes about what a crazy house this is. And um, who would have thought when Rex Tillerson was appointed, this guy from, you know, Big Oil, who, you know, just uh, that he would turn out to be sort of the 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 hero of the the moderate uh, rational political center? I didn't occur to me. I. I, I'm surprised, but there well, he is. I mean, is anybody a hero yet? I mean, and yes, you're absolutely right. And we go back to uh, Susan Collins, I think, had a hot mic moment uh, a couple of months ago where she said something similar. I forget where her exact words are, but, were, but <laughs> they were, yes, this is a crazy time. That's a crazy house. But is anybody, I mean, so they all do that, and they all, you know, I, they all just sort of swim in that water that's really hot, but it started to feel lukewarm to them. And 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 nothing changes much day to day. And yeah, maybe Tillerson behind the scenes is trying to keep things from going off the rails from the point of view of foreign policy, although not to the extent of actually staffing his own department with assistant secretaries or anything like that. I, I don't know. Someday there'll be an ambassador to Norway. Someday <laughs> this is going to happen. But I, I, is anybody a hero at this point just because... I mean, it seems to me they're all right now willing to live with this situation, maybe just for want of anything plausible to do about it. Well, they're telling each other you have to stay because if you don't, some crazy person could be appointed and we've got to stay here and protect the country. And uh, I mean, there's, I think, a great sense possibly overblown on the part of some of these guys that, that they're they're staying to protect the country. Uh, and that if they went away, the country would be in more danger than it is right now from um, a crazy president. But, and, you know, I, I, you could argue that. I mean, I can't imagine, to tell you the truth, if Tillerson left, I can't imagine them appointing another secretary of state, finding somebody that both Trump and the Republicans in Congress could agree upon. It, it's just... Um, and so, as you pointed out, we don't have anybody under Tillerson in the <laughs> State Department. I don't know. There may be, you know, some some guy who's right now delivering uh, lunch that will be by next week, setting policy in North Korea. Darn if I know. Uh, what worries me. That's that would worry me less than the guy he's delivering lunch to setting policy in North Korea, <laughs> which is what's happening right now. Uh, Gail Collins. Well, it's good to make Gail Collins laugh. You feel like you've accomplished something. Uh, one of the great uh, writers of humorous prose uh, and op-ed columnist for The New York Times. Uh, you were our first guest ever. I hope you I hope I you're not so our last honored. guest. Ever. <laughs> and now look at look at us both. We're still here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's our big accomplishment. We're like we're like Rex Tillerson. We're just hanging on trying to save the country anyway we can. All right. So thanks to Gail. We're going to take a little break right here. Some very nice people. Actually, I really don't know who's in the pledge room. They could be like really horrible people for all I know. I'm going to take a flyer and say it's very nice people are going to ask you to support this radio show. Please do that and please do it uh, during our uh, time period because it might persuade people, important people, that we're the reason that you're supporting. wants to bet with me. Trump will start World War Three. What's the probability? What odds will someone give to me that he could do it? I mean, you wouldn't put it past him.
so great to have Mike and Karen Pence in the studio. We'd also like to welcome our new intern, Neil. Wait, you're leaving? Just because his name is Neil? How much did it cost the taxpayers to fly you guys up to Hartford? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish was our Amanda Fish, and our intern was Neil. Neil, damn it! The part of Bill Curry was played by Bob Corker. Tomorrow, the yodeling show you've been waiting for. And now, back to Colin. The Harvey Weinstein story, which we began unfolding on our show on Friday, has had some new chapters over the weekend. The latest chapter, unless there's one I don't know about, involves his dismissal from his own company, the Weinstein Company, by its board for his pattern of sexual harassment. The board, in dismissing him, said new information had come to light, which sounds very... Lebowski-like. But, uh, so joining us to help explain all this uh, and help us understand more is Alyssa Rosenberg, uh, who writes the Act 4 opinion column about culture and politics for The Washington Post. She's been with us before. So, uh, Alyssa Rosenberg, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. It's lovely to be here. One thing that they probably will have to do before we get into the nitty-gritty of this, you sort of wonder whether they'll rebrand. I, I don't know whether your colleague, Alexandra Petri, is already working on a, a plan to rebrand the Weinstein Company as Bob. But, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think emphasizing Bob is a really good idea right now, if you know what I mean. I think anything that gets them away from the current image is going to be desirable. I don't know how much they can actually do that. I mean, part of what's fascinating about this, of course, is that it's sort of an operatic family feud, right? And there has been some turnover at the Weinstein Company lately. There's been some discussion about whether there are some more junior employees who would like to be running the show. But certainly, you know, the sort of emotional coup de grace here is one brother forcing the other out of the company, even if it's for behavior that probably should have gotten him booted a very long time ago. So let's talk about that force out, too. So we, the, the board is citing new information. Do we think that, and maybe we have no idea of knowing, but do we think that this new information was of a similar but perhaps accelerated level of salacious behavior, oh, something comparable and, and analogous to what we already know and have had reported? Or so I, mean, I, yeah, I interpreted ahead. that as them saying that the New York Times reporting was new information to them. My assumption there was that they are firing him in terms that are an attempt to give them plausible deniability, right? If they say that they had no idea about these settlements, you know, and if they were made out of Weinstein's personal fortune rather than company funds, then that absolves them of a certain level of moral responsibility for anything that happened during that time. It's possible that their internal investigation had turned up new allegations, new settlements, but my interpretation was very much that they wanted to be seen as terminating Weinstein in response to the New York Times reporting, not least because it makes them look less bad if they didn't know. The other kind of new information that sometimes triggers moments like this isn't really not so much new information, but a discussion after which there's a consensus that the company will sink unless Harvey Weinstein is gotten rid of. I mean, the nicest way to interpret all this, at least in terms of our attitudes towards the board, is the way that you just described it. Now that they know this, or now that they can't possibly deny that they know this, they They're have to do something. They're taking swift, decisive <laughs> action. They're not, you know, it's not an indefinite suspension anymore. They're just cutting ties and they're done. But, right, I think it's an interesting moment for the company because Harvey is obviously just much higher profile than his brother Bob. And so... I think he was a toxic millstone, to mix my metaphors a little bit, and it made sense that they had to get rid of him. But 
I would be curious to see if they rebrand, if Bob ends up opening something under another shingle. I think it's important to remember that a third of the board quit before this vote even took place. Whether people are going to want to be in business with Bob Weinstein or Harvey Weinstein in the same way, I think is very much up in the air. So some of the interesting paradoxes here have to do, and and, and there are things that that you wrote about, but I'm going to go at at them initially in from the other side, is is that Weinstein's output, the output of this company, is the kind of output that would be very interesting and appealing to exactly the constituency most likely to be offended by all this. So maybe that's the difference between Harvey Weinstein and Roger Ailes. One could argue that the people who watch Fox News don't take some complaints anyway of sexual harassment quite as seriously as maybe somebody who has a a liberal woman-based constituency. Well, I think there there are interesting tensions on both sides of the aisle here, right? When you have conservatives who are accused of long-term and profitable get sexual harassment, there's some tension there about whether or not they've been preaching morality, marital fidelity, whether they've been saying that liberals are sort of more libertine and thus treat women like pigs. On the left side of the scale, you have people who are promoting not just in their movies, but you know, with their charitable giving, gender equality. You know, Weinstein had helped endow a chair named after Gloria Steinem at Rutgers. He had joined one of the women's marches in January. And so the tension is of a different sort. It's not that he is necessarily preaching morality and moral marital fidelity, but he is saying that he sees women as equals, even as he is allegedly harassing them and pressuring them. And so there's hypocrisy sort of on both sides of the aisle, which makes this a very tense, but potentially very productive conversation about gender and power. Right. On the Weinstein Company side, I guess one thing that I was thinking, having talked to an independent uh, film exhibitor on Friday who said, you know, there's been there have been some conversations already about maybe boycotting their product. This is before Harvey got ousted, but maybe boycotting the product, maybe not. If you think about sort of where Harvey Weinstein's films play, well, I mean, some of them are, are sort of blockbusters, but an awful lot of them play in independent art houses, places like that, where by and large liberal people show up to watch movies. I mean, I, I'm generalizing here, but but the audience for a lot of these movies probably would be uniquely offended by all this. And it might have been a real problem for the Weinstein Company if, in fact, exhibitors rebelled, too, and said, you know what, we're not comfortable showing these films. We have a core audience, which we're very much in touch with, and they don't like this. But I think that gets at how tricky it can be to target some of these boycotts, right? Because it's not just Harvey Weinstein who you punish with a boycott, especially now that he's been terminated from his company. That has downstream effects for all of his distributors. And maybe you can argue that anyone who is in business with Harvey Weinstein, even for a minute, should have known all of this and never should have worked with him in the first place. But I just don't necessarily see that that is a particularly targeted response. If that makes any sense, I mean, no, I agree with you. A pariah, right? Yeah. Like he's this, you know, sort of bon vivant, this big figure on the Hollywood scene. Like, kick him out of restaurants, kick him out of clubs. Like, <laughs> punish him, not necessarily the, in some cases, progressive artists that he works with. Oh, no, absolutely. And I, I think it, you're absolutely right about this. And when you do stuff like this, it punishes not only all the people that you just mentioned, but everybody who worked on a movie. You know, right. and, and all the people who worked on a movie, the movies are massively collaborative things. They don't have a whole lot of choice about whether it's a Harvey Weinstein movie or, or not. Why punish them? Why punish their art? Right. And you can sort 
of go down the rabbit hole on that one a little bit. I mean, I, I completely understand people who are not particularly interested in giving money to Woody Allen, for example. But even that is just more targeted, right? I mean, not least because the allegations against Woody Allen have been known for incredibly publicly for decades at this point. It's not even sort of an open secret scenario. And so the choices that people are making to work with him are much clearer. When you talk about sort of boycotts or personal decisions not to give people money, you can say that you don't want to hurt a single innocent person with like one-tenth of a penny of your ticket dollars, but there's some middle ground there in terms of being a little bit more targeted. Right. This is also one of the ways in which this whole industry and this whole conversation is filled with gray areas because although I completely agree with you with what you just said about Woody Allen, on the other hand, we'll get tweets right right away saying, well, in fact, other than the fact that he married a woman who had been his significant other's stepdaughter and whom he'd known as a little girl – Nothing else is really sort of proved as a matter of record. In fact, you know, the official record in some ways cuts the other way. Right, and I think that's why these questions are really difficult, right? Because they are personal. They They implicate personal morality as much as they implicate legal standards. And one of the reasons that the sort of settlements that Weinstein allegedly used are so insidious is that they keep these disputes from being litigated in actual courts of law and thus far away from guilty or innocent verdicts that provide, I think, a lot of people with more clarity in these matters. So, yes, Harvey Weinstein has not been found guilty of sexual harassment in a court of law, but he's paid a lot of money to make sure that he won't be in a position to be on the receiving end of that sort of verdict. And I think that's important to keep in mind. So, Lizzie, can we talk about the everybody new phenomenon? Because I think that's complicated, too. Meryl Streep, within the last 24 hours, although she publicly saluted the women who did come forward and showed enough courage to talk about this, she, her quote is, one thing can be clarified. Not everybody knew. Harvey supported the work fiercely, was exasperating, but respectful with me in our working relationship and with many others with whom he worked professionally. I didn't know about these other offenses. I did not know about his financial settlements with actresses and colleagues. I did not know about his having meetings in his hotel room, his bathroom, or uh, other inappropriate coercive acts. And if everybody knew, I don't believe that all the investigative reporters in the entertainment and the hard news media would have neglected for decades to write about it. And this kind of militates against what we were all hearing and saying on Friday, which was that this was some kind of open secret that everybody knew about it. I don't know. Meryl Streep was in movies that Harvey Weinstein produced. She's saying she didn't know about it. I don't know. What do you do with something like that? Well, and I think that it's important to remember that extraordinarily famous people live extremely cloistered lives in a lot of ways. Someone like Meryl Streep is probably not reading Twitter. She's also probably not someone who people are going to be eager to offend by saying that a long-term artistic partner did various things. And so I think the question of whether everybody knew is an important one, in, especially in a corporate context. I mean, did his business partners know on any level? If so, why didn't they terminate him sooner? But the idea that sort of everybody knew or everybody didn't know is, to me, a little bit secondary, right? I mean, everyone knew that Harvey Weinstein had a reputation for being unbelievably difficult and abusive to people he worked with, people he didn't work with. I mean, if there's evidence that he paid off reporters, that people were sort of affirmatively complicit in wrongdoing, I think that's really worth knowing about and worth engaging with. I think it's also worth remembering that just because Meryl Streep didn't know something is not sort of universally exculpatory because someone like Meryl Streep lives in an incredible bubble, whether I think she 
wants to live in that bubble or not, people that famous are simply just deferred to and treated differently and protected from certain hard facts in a way that I think is alien to a lot of us. But more to the point, stories like this can be very difficult to report legally, right? You know, I don't think Weinstein is actually going to end up suing the New York Times, um, although I wouldn't put money on that since he's a showman and he's represented by Charles Harder. But stories like this actually are somewhat difficult to nail down legally. You need to have some pretty concrete understanding of the sort of settlements that the New York Times was reporting. You probably need someone who's willing to go on the record, which is not always easy. Ashley Judd and uh, Rose McGowan have talked in sort of more general terms about their experiences in Hollywood, but it took them a while to come forward. So a story like this can be hard to report, especially about a powerful person. But at the end of the day, the conversation is not so much who gets to be morally superior about having known first. It's all happening now. So, Alyssa, we're running out of time here, but one of the things that you wrote about so well is this intersection between the entertainment world and the world of politics and the the tremendous role, as you've said earlier in this conversation, that Weinstein played. I mean, he really was very available for, say, a big Planned Parenthood fundraiser who could deliver a lot of resources and star power to something like that. Democratic candidates are talking about uh, returning contributions, anything that sort of is Weinstein money maybe has to come back. It's an interesting question, right? How clean does every Everybody have to get their hands if they've decided that stuff from Harvey is essentially dirty. Well, and I think that one of the challenges here is that the entertainment industry produces pop culture with a lot of progressive messages. It also produces pop culture with a lot of incredibly regressive assumptions. And then in terms of how the entertainment industry runs as a business, it often functions in ways that I think Democrats would find unacceptable in other industries. It's overwhelmingly white and male. It is, you know, there have been various abuses in reality television. You know, everyone works on these sort of contingent contract bases. It's an industry that meets up with progressive priorities in a sort of inconsistent and vexed way. And tolerance for sexual harassment by powerful people is only one of the ways in which the entertainment industry's priorities don't align with the putative liberal agenda at all. I think that that is a relationship where Democrats have often been so grateful both for campaign contributions from rich people and for publicity for their messages that they forget to push the entertainment industry as a business. And I think Harvey Weinstein is one of the most visible and vexed examples of this, but he's hardly alone. If there's a silver lining to this whole sordid mess, it's I now have a moral basis for the reason I never went to see the movie Iron Lady. Uh, it's because uh, Harvey Weinstein is a pig. I just didn't know I had a moral basis, but I'm sure well, it was. Isn't moral superiority fun? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. All right, Alyssa Rosenberg, great to visit with you. Alyssa writes the Act 4 opinion column about culture and politics for The Washington Post. Don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you back. Anytime. <laughs> 